face the day and in your presence all our fears are washed away so when we see you or when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence lord in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away our praise and our adoration this morning. 
turn your attention to scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to uh, open with me, we're going to be in Psalm 64. These are the first four verses uh, that, that David, the author of this psalm, writes. He says, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Now I want to stop because in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the phrase from the ends of the earth appears several times. And, and one of the things that the authors are typically saying when they reference the ends of the earth is that they've gone to places or been in seasons where it just feels like God is not present. But we as God's people know that that's not the case. That wherever we go, no matter how far we feel like we've wandered or no matter how distant it feels like God is, can be just as simple as just turning around from what's in front of me, what I'm looking at and focusing on, and just recognizing the presence of God 
has been right with me all along. Amen. Let's continue. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. David recognizes, he looks back, he reflects, he recognizes God has been faithful and he's not going to change. And then David says, I long to dwell in your tent forever. What gives David hope is being in the presence of God because he recognizes that God is the everlasting God whose strength does not fade. God does not grow weary. He defends those who are weak. He comforts those who are in need. Could we sing those words together again this morning? You are the everlasting God. You are the everlasting God. You're the everlasting God. And you do not faint. You grow defender of the weak and you comfort those in need you lift us up on wings like eagles as we continue in worship this morning how we recognize we declare and and pray Lord we desire you more than anything else let's sing these words together we have had we have had enough of giving everything more 
we declare that we want more of him. Oh, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Oh, Spirit of the
sometimes when we worship him, the words should be hard for us to sing. That's a bold prayer in and of itself. Lord, build my life. We really, really, allow, we're willing to allow him to truly do that this morning. I think he's already speaking. It's good news for us. Maybe we become more and more aware of his presence this morning as we go to prayer together. Father, may the words of our songs be the beginning of our prayers today. The spirit of the one living God fall fresh on us. We know at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came and I think often, Lord, we, we want a repeat of that experience, but the Holy Spirit's been given. It's, it's here. It's among us. It's, it's waiting to, to fill us, God. So, Lord, I pray not for a new fresh falling, Lord, but for a, a recognition of this, this given spirit. Given so lovingly from a God who created us. That we would be empowered Enabled to, to be who you it is, that, Lord, you've created us to be, who you've saved us to be. Jesus teaches us to come before you and to hallow your name. To come before you recognizing who it is that you are. Perhaps we need to pause for just a moment and, and quit just overloading you and just shoving our requests and our concerns before you. And yes, they matter, Lord. They're important to you, we know. Lord, but before we do that, Father, may we first come. We thank you. May we first come, Lord, recognizing who you are. May we first come humbly. Because, Lord, when we come before you in that manner, in that posture, then all of a sudden we are shown very clearly what's lacking in our lives. We see the separation. We see the distance between you and between us, Lord. And, and now, Lord, we know what it is that is truly needed. More of you. God, I pray that that would also be a continuation of our worship and our prayer today, that we would truly want, desire, and ask for more, more of you knowing that when we ask that, that the only way that that's possible is, is that we continue to empty ourselves of ourselves daily, maybe moment by moment, creating more space for you. Now, Lord, we're needy people. We're tired. Maybe we're frustrated. Maybe it's been a challenging week. Maybe we're uncertain and we're confused. Maybe we just don't know what it is that we're longing for. Lord, your spirit's brought us here today, and I pray that we would see first and foremost that you are the answer to whatever it is we need. You're our great provider. You're the great physician. You're our living hope. You're the one, Lord, who models for us relationships, who shows us reconciliation. Through the hands and the feet of Jesus, teaches us to love. God, today, as we dig a little bit deeper into this idea of, of these little gods that are at war for our lives, may we be willing to be honest enough. May, may you give us the vision to see those things that maybe we've allowed to creep in. Those things, Lord, that we've given a seat on the throne of our hearts in replace of you. 
Lord, not, uh, we're not afraid of a spirit of conviction, Lord, but it, it's not conviction, Father, that I pray would draw us to you, rather, God, instead, the love that you have for us. Pray for those that are sick today and need a physical touch. For the lonely and discouraged, Lord, who need to be reminded that they're loved. For the mom and dad that's tired and weary, pray for rest and encouragement. The very real, tangible financial need that might exist, be it a job or be it a leaky roof or a broken water heater, Lord, those things tend to creep in when we least want them to. Provide. Miraculous ways, Lord, provide. Add to our story. Give us a testimony. May it all, Lord, the good, the bad, and the ugly in between, may it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to thank Caleb Berkey for coming and leading us this morning. I certainly appreciate his heart and his spirit. And right, beautiful, beautiful heart and spirit here today. And we're glad for that. And I'm glad that we had a chance to spend some time together, to worship together, to dig into God's word together. And as we introduced this new conversation last week, uh, this is not going to be an easy five, six weeks together. Uh, God is doing something in us and he continues to work among us, there's, there's some things he needs to continue to do in us and to, to help us get prepared for what he has next. And what we've been talking about or what we're going to continue talking about is one of the heaviest burdens that I carry as a pastor. I shared last week, several years ago, God put a burden on my heart that one of the biggest challenges that our world faces, not just outside of the church, but even inside of the church, is this idea of idolatry. And we think about, well, we're inside the church. We don't struggle with that. But yet I do believe that's something that we need to talk about, allow God to talk with us about. Because there are gods at war among us and inside of us. Maybe each of these gods, they battle for position in our lives and perhaps none greater than the gods of pleasure, which we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. Those gods of personal satisfaction. Those gods of comfort that perhaps we pursue without even realizing it. There's many ways that this could look like in our lives. Think about what it is that makes you happy, where it is that you find your joy, or where it might be that you find satisfaction or contentment or comfort. Therein we find these different gods of pleasure at work among us. I'm going to talk about a few specific ones, but these are just kind of the low-hanging fruit. These are the easy ones for us to discuss this morning. First one is sex. <clears throat> Pastor, talking about sex. Yes, we talk about that because it's a real part of our lives and our culture today. And to, to not talk about it, it would be a disservice because it's the most searched word on the internet. It's the word that's most sought after. There's more money spent on sex, pornography, and, and such than rock, country, mu and all other music combined. Think about that for a moment. Promises pleasure, but so often brings with it destruction. We're talking about food today. We all love food, don't we? I love food. You know, in the United States, we spend over $100 billion a year on fast food. I've contributed to some of that. When we've had rough days or there's nothing left to eat, we just swing by the drive-thru or we go in and we get something quick, quick on the go. But with that comes a consequence. There's a price to pay. We have 41% of the people in the United States that are obese, they're overweight, that 
struggle with the health complications that come with that. There might be other issues and factors involved, and I'm not just saying it's all about food, but you understand. With these pleasurable things we pursue, there are things that come with them. Perhaps it looks like entertainment in your life. Maybe it's music or movies or sports, leisure, or whatever you do for fun. Does it occupy your time? Does it, does it take up your, your resources, your funding? Maybe it's whatever it is in your life that brings pleasure. Those are those gods that creep in so quickly. A false god always begins as a gift from the one true God. But it's when the gifts from God, that, when they take the place of God, that dysfunction and destruction always come closely behind. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Where is it that we seek pleasure? And I've had those pleasurable pursuits gotten in the way or distracted us from the one true God. We all like to give gifts. We like to sometimes perhaps you like to receive them as well. But perhaps you remember a time where you found that perfect gift. Maybe it's for a child or a spouse or a parent. This was the perfect gift, the gift that you knew they wanted and that they would love. You presented the gift, and it brought this incredible amount of joy for a little while. But after time, the newness wears off, the, the shininess kind of goes away. And all of a sudden, what brought joy becomes a source of discontent. If you have children, it's, it's like Christmas morning. They love their toys, but the next day they have nothing to do. They're bored, nothing new to play with. Too often when that happens in our lives, the gift then becomes a distraction. We wonder, how could a nice gift have gone so wrong? It was the perfect gift. It, it, it was what they wanted. It, it met a need or it brought such happiness and satisfaction. But in time, if the gift, the thing that we desired, becomes more important than the one who gave the gift, we find ourselves worshiping the gift. We become an idolater. The gift itself is not wrong or evil, but instead it's distracted us from the one who lovingly gave it in the first place. Augustine, the theologian, refers to these gods in our lives as disordered love. These, these things that we love, these gifts that we've received that we very quickly become or place in places of worship in our life, they become a disordered love. It's something that we love, but it's out of order. We've put it before the one who lovingly gave it, gave it to us in the first place. And these gods of pleasure often begin as good gifts, especially from God. God's the one who gave us food and entertainment and sex and relaxation and everything in between. They know themselves are not sinful. But it's when the good things that God gives us, when we get them out of order, to put them ahead of the one who gave them to us, they've quickly become idols. Too often, without even knowing it, we begin to live life for pleasure, for comfort. For the feel good. If it feels good, we should just do it, right? That's what our world would tell us today. That's kind of the mantra. Follow your heart, the world tells us, which is the worst advice you could ever follow because our hearts are always bent towards self. We're always bent away from God and not toward him. It's only through the act of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to pursue him with all of our hearts. What motivates us at times to get out of bed in the morning is not the God who's given us a new day, but rather our relationships, our time, our money, the things that we get to pursue. Without even realizing it, we begin to worship the gods of pleasure instead of the God who has given us such incredibly wonderful gifts. An old song by a musician called Carmen. I'm really dating myself today. 
But in this song, he's, he, the lyrics are, are talking about David and Bathsheba. And in the song, there's this line, keep your eyes on the creator, man, and not on his creation. When our eyes focus on the creations rather than the creator, we become very quickly those who worship false gods and idols. If you want to know, that's that song called God Don't Care What the Circumstance. I think you enjoy it. There's some, probably had some really fun and entertaining stuff way back when in the day. We, that used to be when I was young. I don't like talking about that anymore. Struggle with that. But we find ways to cope with our pleasurable items. Have a rough day at work. Perhaps you get home and you want something to drink or you want something to eat. Or maybe a rough uh, time in your relationship. We have to break out the, the pint of ice cream and turn on the rom-com and begin to drown our sorrows in food. I, I like to have, I, well, I don't, well, I, I do this. I, I'll buy a pack of cookies, but I'll hide them. In my house, you've got to hide things. When you have eight kids, they find stuff. And so I hide the cookies. And I, I justify, well, I don't want them to eat all the cookies. But the reality is I need those cookies to cope when things don't go well. I'm having a rough day. And when I used to have a bad day, I'd stop at McDonald's, get two chocolate chip cookies and a Diet Coke. That's how I would cope. We all have our ways to cope. We, we want those things to bring us pleasure. For some, it's a website. For others, a drink. For you, it might be shopping. You get to know your Amazon driver a bit too well. Then you cope in the wrong way. One-click shopping might not be something that you want to pursue. That might be something you turn off on your computer. For others, maybe it's a half dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. You see the hot donut sign lit up, and you just have to stop. We can't help it. We cope in different ways. These things bring us pleasure. Maybe going to a ball game, sporting event, or a concert. You ever wait in line for concert tickets? Really dating myself now. Nobody? I'm the only one who did that. Yeah, a few of us did, yeah. Wait in line for concert tickets. You know, I got here early this morning, about 10 to 8. No one was waiting in line to get in. I get that. I, I'm just joking. I understand. The thing is, there, there are things we get excited about that we go out of our way for. And when we do that ahead of our Creator, if we're not careful, it can become an idol in our lives. Is there anyone in the house who would, would acknowledge that once upon a time you waited in line at a store for a Cabbage Patch doll? Anybody? There we are, a few nods. Somebody get that. You understand what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, what's a Cabbage Patch doll? What is that? Google it, you'll find out. It was all the, the madness and the craze back in the 80s. My mom and dad did that. It was kind of crazy. There were fights breaking out in stores for Cabbage Patch dolls. For just certain ones. We like the bald with a little poof of hair on the top. You know, you needed a different eye color. There was all kinds of madness going on for Cabbage Patch dolls. People were pursuing the gift. And often the gift was more important than the one who gave it. Too often we do the same things even today. But we've gotten really good at it. I can hide my chocolate chip cookies and no one sees my problem or my false god. I can eat the pint of ice cream and get rid of the container before anybody knows that it's gone. I can use private searching on Safari so no one can search my web history. There's ways that I can hide the gods that I pursue without other people knowing what they are. But the truth is, God knows. And he sees it all. And when things go wrong, as they often do, then finally we turn to God as a last resort. Not first, but when those temporary pleasures of life are no longer meeting our needs. We'll dig into that in just a little bit. When we treat God as a last resort, that's when we put him in our pizza box. 
pile's getting bigger. Thank you for that. Keep bringing them in. I want them. Each week we're going to add to it. As a reminder that too often this is how we treat him. Does he fit in here? Will he be quiet if I put him in here? If I, if I leave him out, can I have leftovers tomorrow? And God becomes this commodity rather than our creator. But in so doing, we replace him with a false god. Remember, we learned last week we all worship something. We're worshipful people. And if we put God away, we put him aside, we put him in the refrigerator till tomorrow, that's not how this relationship with him works. Today we're reading out of 1 Kings chapter 18 uh, primarily, but I'm going to jump around a little bit as well uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of update as to what's leading up to 1 Kings 18. In, in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, we read this. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Ahab married a woman named Jezebel, who was a princess of the Sidonians. She set up an altar and a temple for the god of Baal in Samaria. She had many prophets of the Lord killed. So Ahab, who's evil in the eyes of the Lord, he's more evil than any king prior to him, marries Jezebel, who brings with her the gods from her land. And Ahab accepts it. And we very quickly learn, we're reminded that God, our God, is a jealous God. We read last week in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, that God gives us this commandment, you shall not bow down to an idol or to worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the word jealous we read in this, in this Hebrew context is the word kanah. Kanah is used six times in all of the Old Testament, only six times. Each time it refers to God. It's a jealousy in, 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 that corresponds to only God. And when it comes to jealousy that man might experience, that's a different word, kana. But, but kana speaks of God's jealousy. And, and the word specifically means that, that God demands exclusive service. There can be no one else between you and I. I'm it. We see it three times in Deuteronomy when we were explaining, when God is explaining to the people the law and why, what it means. We also see it three times in Exodus. Once in Exodus 20, verse 5. Two times in Exodus 34, verse 14, which reads, For thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What does that mean? Are gods envious? Not necessarily. That's not what it's talking about. But what God is saying in this moment is, I am the I am. I'm it. There is no room for any other. There can be no any other. Any other that you might try to put in place of me is not me, and it's fake. It's false, it's hollow, it's powerless. So he's not jealous in an envious sort of way, but what he's communicating to us by saying that he is jealous is that he's it. He's the only option, the only game in town. Scripture tells us that punishment comes from worshiping those who hate him. He demands exclusive service. It's not punishment that God's simply doling out because we've made a bad choice. He's not sending us to our room because we've gotten in trouble. The punishment occurs when we choose to separate ourselves from the one and only God. That's when the punishment becomes something that we realize. When we choose to walk away from the only one who is good in our lives. Earthly pleasure exists, yes. We're free to choose them, yes. But it is always temporary and will always leave us lacking and wanting more. Apart from God, there is nothing inherently good on its own. So when God says he's jealous, he's simply saying that you're mine. I created you. 
I am the I am. I'm the only one you need. So our God, who's a jealous God, eventually has had enough with Ahab. He's had enough with the people of Israel. Because when Jezebel brought in her, her gods from her land, and then everybody else started to worship the Baals and the Asherahs, the false gods. In verse 1 of chapter 17, we read, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. God says there's going to be a drought. It's going to stop raining. Elijah the prophet in these days told of the drought that was coming, and Ahab didn't like that. Got so angry at Elijah, Elijah had to go into hiding. He hides in a cave at the brook of Kareth, waiting for the word of God to come to him. He waits there for three years, Scripture tells us. God had had enough. All right, you want to choose to worship Baal and Asher? That's fine. But you're stepping away from my favor. You're choosing the consequences of that. I try to tell my kids, I have one kid in particular, I won't tell you which one, but spend any time with him, you'll figure it out, who likes to push the boundaries. Not, not alone in that, right? We all have kids that have kind of done that. But what I've tried to begin explaining to my child is that the punishment you think I give you is not what I give you, it's what you're choosing. If you do this, this will happen. They, they know what's coming, yet they do it anyway. Why? Oh, because those false gods are so subtle. They're so tricky, and we just want what we want. Yet it's not a punishment I'm giving them, it's what they're choosing. That's what God is saying in this context. You've chosen Baal, that's fine. But my favor's been removed, and it's not going to rain. Here's the irony in this. Baal was originally created as a god of weather, as a god of rain. You want to worship Baal? That's fine. Go to Baal for your rain. I'll keep my rain to myself, God says. What we learn is that we should not expect God to bless his competition. Why do we expect God to give us his favor when we're living our lives pursuing idols and false gods that aren't him? We see this in our relationships, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our interactions, in our career, in our finances. We put our hope in the false gods for rain when the one true God withholds the rain and says, well, Lord, why aren't you giving me more? Why aren't you providing? Why is this so difficult? God says, because it's what you're choosing. It's what you're pursuing. It's what it is that you want. The Israelites put their hope in a false God for rain. The one true God withholds the rain. And I wonder if this echoes in our lives today. The areas that we perhaps are most frustrated, are they the very areas in which we pursue our own pleasures? We consider that the famine or drought we might find ourselves in are a result of our own choices, or where we've placed our hope, where we think we'll find satisfaction, contentment, and joy? Are we getting out from the bales we've chosen to worship exactly what it is they can give us, which is nothing? Why do we expect God to bless our plans as if that inclusion of God in our lives is sufficient or is worshipful? Why would God bless his competition? The Israelites are worshiping the God of rain, yet it's not raining. Now, admittedly, this isn't always the case in Scripture, but it is in this passage. After a few years, Elijah is commanded by God to go to Ahab and to kind of set things straight. God's had enough. He goes to Ahab, and they kind of set up this, this MMA cage match, if you will, between the false gods and the real God. God sent a drought, but now he's about to send the rain. This match will, face, will feature the Lord God against the God of Baal and Asherah. 
We read in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. So there, the word goes out. There's going to be an event on Mount Carmel, and everybody's free to come. There's no tickets required. So we, we get all the prophets of Baal, which is 450, and all the prophets of Asher, which is 400. There's 850 to 1. It's a pretty overwhelming odd. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah together against Elijah, the one prophet of God. All the people gather to see this battle. They want to see what this looks like. They come, they bring their popcorn, and they've got their seats, and they're watching from a distance. They're all excited. And Elijah brings them together on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people, and he asked this simple question. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. I love this part in Scripture, but the people said nothing. It's a pretty telling verse. The people said nothing. Why do you think they said nothing? I think it's because they wanted both. They wanted the, the pleasures that they think that the prophets of Baal and Asherah brought them, but they also wanted the benefits of being in a relationship with God. They wanted the, what God would bring them as well. They wanted their false gods, and they wanted Yahweh. They, if they wanted Baal and not God, they would have said, we choose Baal. But they didn't say that. If they wanted what God offered, then perhaps they would have said, we want God. Instead, they were silent. They didn't want to be forced to choose. Instead of having the throne of our hearts where God reigns, <laughs> what we find is we often have put a love seat there. Room for two. Maybe a couch. Or a sectional. You can keep adding sections to it. God, you sit here, but I'm going to put my other gods here, here, and here. And it's often the God of pleasure that we ask the one true God to sit next to. We want God to sit next to our television shows. Or God to sit next to our sports team. Or God to sit next to our entertainment option. Or God to sit next to the websites that we like. We want God to sit next to our kids' activities. Which there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves until they become replacements for the one true God. We don't want to choose. What's this is where the people are at? They've been asked the question. They don't give an answer yet. They're silent. They're still kind of waffling. We want both, Elijah. We, we just really can't decide. But there's a war about to be fought. They gather on Mount Carmel, several thousand people more than likely in this moment. In verse 25, Elijah gives some instructions. Choose one of the bulls, he says to the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Prepare it, since there are so many of you. Then call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they'd made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. See, when you read scripture, you have to understand, there's some comedy in here. A little bit of fun stuff. Because in this moment, Elijah starts trash talking. He starts to kind of make fun of them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or he's busy. And the NIV says busy. The original Hebrew translation, what this word busy means is he's went to the bathroom. Perhaps he's relieving himself, Elijah said. He's really having fun with this. He's really pouring it on thick. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and, sleeping and must be awakened. So they shout louder, and they start to slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. 
one of those primitive parts of Scripture that we just kind of dismiss. You would never do that. That's kind of strange. Why would they do that? But how many of us have given up so much of our lives that we bleed for the things that we think we have to have? I'm not talking literally, literally bleeding, but perhaps we've given up part of our lives for that thing we have to have. Maybe it's a chocolate chip cookie. Maybe it's a drink. Maybe it's a cigarette. Those are the easy things. Maybe it's caffeine. Maybe it's a coffee. Maybe it's a Diet Coke. Whatever it might be. What is the thing that you have to have that you've bled for? What have you sacrificed your marriage for? What about your health? Have you bled for the God of TV, your social media, relationship with your children? What is it that we just so desperately need that we give more than we realize so we could find the pleasure that it is that we desire and hunger for? Here's the thing about the gods of pleasure. They always demand more. They'll never ask for less of you tomorrow than they did today. They'll always require you to give more. That's the dangerous part. That's where we get sucked in. That's where it begins to cost us. We might not even realize it. And God becomes a commodity, something to be bartered or traded or bargained with. But in this moment, God's about to make himself known. Midday passes in verse 29, we read, and they continue their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is no response, and there never will be. Because false gods, while they require us to continue giving, to the point where they might even take everything, false gods give nothing. They have nothing to give. They're not real. The gods within us are little gods. Nothing they provide us that's lasting. Nothing they provide us that's permanent. Nothing they provide us that's fulfilling. Now it's Elijah's turn. Scripture tells us he repairs the altar. He picks up the 12 stones that had been originally used for this altar on Mount Carmel. Why does the altar need repaired? That was a startling realization for me as I began to prepare for this message. On this mountain where God alone had once been worshipped, why does the altar of God need repaired? Because Jezebel had come in, brought her gods with her. With her. The altar of God was the one that had been destroyed, had been replaced. But I think Elijah very intentionally starts there, begins to rebuild the altar of the Lord. He then digs a trench around the altar, Scripture tells us. Puts the wood on the altar, then places the bowl on top. He thinks he's ready to begin, and he has a, a unique request, or command, if you will. Taking four large stone jars, he commands those nearby to fill the jars with water and to dump the water on top of the bowl and the wood and the altar. Do it again, he says. Do it a third time, he says. Four jars, three times, twelve jars. Is that significant? I don't know. But what we find now is a muddy mess. And don't miss the irony. We're in the midst of a drought. The most important commodity of this time is water. And Elijah says, go get some water and dump it on top of my offering. And I want you to see something, Elijah says. Take the one thing that many of you are probably thirsty for and really want right now and dump it out. Because God's about to do something impressive. So he saturates the bowl. 
and the wood and the ground. Scripture tells us the trench was filled. I can't help but wonder, this is Elijah's expression, or making them realize that you've saturated their lives with something other than the one true God. What is it we've saturated our lives with today? That, that thing we think we have to have. That feeling, that, that, that comfort food, that, that entertainment, that thing where we find our joy. It's just saturated our lives, and we, we, we've got to have it. But in reality, all it's done is create a muddy mess for us. Kyle Eidelman writes, Gods of pleasure will always take you further than you want to go and demand more from you than you ever imagined you would pay. What happens? We get sucked in. And they just don't let go. Verse 36, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed a simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God, that I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your command. He begins his prayer by letting everyone know who it is he's talking to. Let there be no mistake who you are. Let there be no mistake that what we're about to experience you have instructed in verse 37, Elijah says, answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Well, that's a movie moment, isn't it? That's going to get your attention. In verse 39, when all the people saw this, they were silent before, but now that we read, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now they've chosen. They've given their answer. There could be no doubt. They've made their choice. They've recognized what's been on the throne of their hearts, and they've chosen. A lot more of the story that comes later in 1 Kings 18 and in 19. I encourage you to go and read this. But for our purposes today, we have to make a choice. We can't be silent. It's not an option. I read a story about a young girl. It's not an original story, but it's a very telling story for what we're talking about this morning. Who walked into a store one day with her parents and saw an imitation pearl necklace. And she just had to have that pearl necklace. So she saved up her money until one day she had enough to buy this imitation pearl necklace. She wore her cheap pearls everywhere. No one could get her to take the necklace off. One night, her father came into her room and asked his daughter, do you love me? Well, of course the daughter said she did. Her dad said, well, then I'd like for you to give me your pearls. She told her father that she, she, he could have her favorite toy, but not her pearls. He came in the next night and asked for the same thing. This time she offered him her favorite doll, but would not give him her pearls. But on the third day, the little girl came to her father with tears in her eyes and said, Here, Daddy, you can have the pearls. I want you to know how much I love you. At this, her father reached into his pocket, pulled out a velvet case, and inside was a genuine pearl necklace. He'd been waiting for her to give up the imitation so he could give her the real thing. The gods of pleasure are a cheap imitation church, what the Lord God has for us. The golden calf that the Israelites made was an imitation, a replacement, a visual for the true desires of their hearts. How many of us are clinging tightly to an imitation 
when God is offering the real thing. When I was younger, I used to collect baseball cards. And I still still have them in, in our basement. That's how valuable they are to me. They're in a tub in the basement. But I had some other friends that would collect baseball cards, and we would get together once in a while, and we would trade. And, and we would find favorite players that we liked or, or maybe teams in the moment that we wanted to kind of have or maybe cards we were missing in our collection. We would trade back and forth. And I used to trade my friends for Barry Bonds baseball cards. I've got a stack of them. Because at the moment, I was a Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I, I know we all have our crosses to bear. They've stunk my whole life, and they still stink. But I like the Pirates. So I have a stack of Barry Bonds baseball cards. And for a while, they looked like they were going to be pretty valuable. Until they weren't. When it's believed that he used performance-enhancing drugs to produce the numbers that are on the back of the baseball card. So all of these cards are now worth not much. I have a Mark McGuire rookie baseball card. At one point in time, it was worth $200, and Mark McGuire broke the home run record. I wouldn't trade that card because it was so valuable. So it wasn't. Now it's just a piece of cardboard. Too often in life, we make a lot of not-so-good trades. That in the moment, look like they're going to be great trades, but eventually turn out to be not-so-good. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21 at Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They've traded the glory of God for a cheap imitation. You made a not-so-good trade in your life. Maybe in the midst of doing it, I, I've been right where you're at. I've been there. Maybe you two have said, this is the last time. Or I won't do this again. Tomorrow God will be different. I'm not the only one. We try to remove these gods from our lives. We kind of push them aside. Yet removing them is not the same as replacing them. Replacing them requires surrender and confession, acknowledgement. It requires us to let go of the imitation. To let go of what's not real. That we could receive and be given the genuine thing. Now this is not a sermon about conviction, although I hope the Spirit's moving. One of hope. This is a story where our God knows us. He knows what's in us and what's not in us. He knows what we've chosen, what we've not chosen. And he still, just like the little girl's father, comes to us and waits and offers us the real thing. That is beautiful. It doesn't matter what I do or what I've chosen, I'm never outside the love of God. But he lets me choose. So today, what will you choose? You can hold on to the invitation. God lets you do that. Church, I pray these false gods of pleasure that we've allowed into our lives, I, I just pray we would recognize them and acknowledge how little or how they give us nothing. Say, God, I want what you have for me. Go to the love seat. Put back the one chair and let God once again sit on the throne of your heart. Invite you to stand with me. We're going to pray together. And 
you know, as, as I share what God's put on my heart with you, I'm prepared for no one to respond. That's okay. Between he and I, God and I, and I'm going to share what's on my heart. And, but there was a point in time I've had to surrender and to bring some things to an altar. And this, we call this the altar. If you're new to our church or don't understand what it is we do, this is a place where we come and bring our offering. <laughs> sometimes that offering is broken. Sometimes it's these false gods we need to get rid of. Sometimes it's weariness and brokenness. Sometimes it's confusion. Sometimes it's just ourselves. We bring our offerings to an altar and we let God come and burn them up. Remove all that separates us from him so that we could then be with him. It's a new thing. I get it for some, but it's, it's not a place we would ever shy away from or be embarrassed of. It's a beautiful place. So I pray for you in just a moment. I'm going to invite those who perhaps have some invitations they need to let go of to come and pray to take that step of faith, to acknowledge maybe there's some things in your life that maybe shouldn't be there. Now, I know what you're thinking, that first step, people, well, what's he praying about? What's going on in their lives? That's not important. Between you and the Lord, give you that opportunity this morning. We also read in Psalms, when we do that, delight yourself in the Lord worship the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. <laughs> He'll give you all that you want. All the pleasure and joy that you need will be found in him. Pray together. Father, Lord, would you show us today what imitation we're clinging too tightly to? Show us this morning, God, what it is we might need to let go of. Reveal to us, God, those things we've allowed position of worship in our lives don't belong. Lord, do we sit at home and we pray for rain, hoping that the things in life that we've chosen will provide fulfillment? all we need to do is turn to you. Even this moment, God, some of us have tightened our grip on those imitation things in our lives. We just can't imagine life without them. But you offer us so much more. Father, humility and with sincerity, I just pray you would speak to us. lovingly, Lord, have this conversation that we need to have. So that, God, there'd be nothing between us. Word of God, speak. Thank you, Lord. The Lord is speaking to you. Our altars are open. We invite you to surrender those invitations in your life today.
Father, I thank you for the work you've done here this morning. Lovingly reminding us, pointing out those things in our lives that separate us from you. I pray, Father, we would leave with no more excuses, no more trying, no more simply removing. God, we would choose today to replace those things in our lives that don't belong with the one true God who offers us the real thing. Help us not to settle for imitations. Keep drawing us back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for your time today. Leave your imitations here. Take the real thing with you. God bless you. Good day.